0: Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by deer hair master, Pat Cohen. We take a deep dive into his life as an artist, his passion for stacking deer hair, and his new book, Super Bass Flies. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Using a science-based approach, BTT and its partners work tirelessly to conserve and restore the flat species so many of us love to chase on the fly. On September 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern, BTT will virtually host its ninth annual NYC auction and awards ceremony. You can attend this great event from the comfort of your home. Please visit btt.org to learn more register and support this great organization now on to our interview well pat welcome to the articulate fly
1: well thanks for having me marvin
0: i'm really looking forward to it and we have a tradition here uh we always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory
1: oh man my earliest fishing memory um boy that seems so long ago now i think i'm getting old uh Well, I think probably it's very similar to most other people. Um, I don't have a specific story, but, you know, drowning worms under a bobber with my dad, my mom. Um, I know when when we were growing up, we moved from from Long Island to uh, upstate New York. And one of the first places that we lived was way out in the country, and we had this little tiny farm pond that was kind of down the street. or well, It was right across the, the driveway in a field, uh, right right below the house. And I know when my, my dad was at work, my mom would take us down there. And uh, I don't know that she liked it so much, but she definitely put all the worms on the hooks for us so that we could catch bluegills. So that would probably be one of my uh, my earliest fishing memories.
0: Yeah, very neat. And when did you get pulled to the dark side of fly fishing?
1: I started fly fishing in 2008.
0: Interesting. And how did that come about?
1: So I'd always fished on and off. um, You know, obviously bait when I was young and then graduated to lures and soft plastics and all that kind of jazz. Um, And then later on, basically, I I was... Terrible angler. I never caught a thing, uh, or very, you know, not 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 very frequently. So my brother and my dad and I were at uh, the Schuerry Creek, and we were throwing gear. And my brother had a Eagle Claw fly spin combo rod in his trunk, and I grabbed that thing. and I set it up as a fly rod, and it was the very first time I'd ever even held a flat rod in my hand. I mean, if you can even call that thing a flat rod. So I. I grabbed it, set it up and walked out into the stream and, uh, started whipping it around. And that was my very first experience with a fly rod. And I don't know what happened, why it happened, but I loved it. And, uh, really soon thereafter became completely obsessed and immersed in it.
0: Yeah. Very neat. Who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey?
1: So where I live, there's not a whole lot going on as far as fly fishing. In fact, uh, you know, you go to the, the little local places to fish and, and people kind of look at you like you're insane when you're you're waving at that around. So there wasn't a lot for me to learn from. Uh, so I had found there's an ll bean and i know it's you know oh big box whatever but uh, there was an ll bean about an hour from my house and i had gone there and, and they had a at the time not so much anymore but at the time it was a very very active fly fishing department and i met a couple of guys from there and uh i can't say that they mentored me but they gave me some guidance as far as you know hey uh try this, try that, maybe, you know, whatever. So, so I had learned a little bit more about equipment, not, not necessarily techniques or, or fishing skills or casting skills. I learned all of that on my own. Um, And then I had found another shop uh, a little further away from my house. Uh, It's closed now, but it was called Goldstock Sporting Goods. And there was a man in there by the name of Tom Brewster and Tom Tom was an interesting guy. He's, uh, he was an old saltwater fly fisherman and just lived to catch stripers in Cape Cod. So we, uh, we hit it off and, and he, if there was somebody that I would say had the biggest influence as far as fly fishing in my life goes, it it would be, it would be Tom. He kind of took me under his wing, directed me. Introduced me once he saw the flies that I had started to tie. Um, introduced me to uh, Bob Mead and uh, Dave Brandt, and uh, those were like the first two people that were already active and established in the fly fishing, fly tying world that I had met. And uh, you know, they they were super nice guys to me, and uh, and then it just kind of all you know went from there.
0: Yeah, very neat. And you know, you know, in addition to being a fly tire, you know, you're also a tattoo artist and an illustrator. When did you become interested in art? I don't know that's a super broad term, and you know, kind of what drew you into that world.
1: I've done art for, you know, my my entire life. I mean, you know, ask ask any parent, I guess, right? Their kid is the best artist in the world, isn't that how it goes? Yeah. But I had uh I'd always drawn and then, you know, in high school started to take it a little bit more seriously. And then when I had gone to to college, um, my first two years had nothing to do with with art. They were psychology. Actually, I got a degree in psychology. And then when I went to uh, further that education, I went to Binghamton. And uh, again, I was there for psychology. And I had gotten lost in the sculpture studio trying to find classes, you know, my normal psychology class. And I was like, you know what? This is where I need to be, not, not psychology. And uh, from there, I just really started taking art seriously and ended up with a bachelor's degree in sculpture. And then when I got out of school, um, I realized that that's a, a pretty non-paying degree. So went back again and uh, learned about computer graphics and graphic design. And I did that for actually quite a while. And then, uh, always in the back of my head, you know, I, I always illustrated and I always drew. Um, I used to teach figure drawing classes and stuff. And then, uh, uh, basically I, I'd always been interested in, in tattooing and, uh, it's not an easy field to get into. You have to do a traditional apprenticeship and, and, uh, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of abuse. It's, uh, you are in your way into that world. So it took a long time for that to happen. Um, but it was something that I really, really, really wanted to happen and uh, just worked for it. So it's kind of always been something that's been in me, been part of me creating in some form or fashion.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've watched your Instagram feed, and I so I see your your tattoo work. Um, and there seems to be kind of a definite style to that. And, you know, I've seen the work that you do, cause I know you illustrate, uh, big cliff boxes too. Um, yeah. and, and you know, I can start looking at those and I'd be like, Oh, that's a Pat Cohen box. Or, you know, I think if you showed me 20 tattoo pictures, I could probably pick your work out of a lineup. You, you know, how would you describe your style?
1: You know, it's funny. We, we have, uh, my, my other half misdeed and I had had this discussion not that long ago, I, you know, because I, I living where I live, like I'm in upstate New York, there there isn't a lot of opportunity to say, um, hey, look, this is what I, I specialize in. You've got to kind of be able to do a little bit of everything because you've got a fairly diverse group of individuals that that I do business with. So. So some people will come in and they'll want, you know, a, a black and gray portrait. Other people will come in and they're going to want, you know, some kind of <laughs> traditional Americana piece. So I don't know that I have, in my mind, I guess, I, I don't know that I have a very specific style. I, I have things that I enjoy more than more than others. I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but things that I respond to better than than others as far as style goes like I love black and gray tattoos I think there's something about them that uh, they're they're raw they're natural it's the way my brain thinks uh, it's also it's one of those things where there's no there's no trickery there's no hiding anything uh, either you can you can do it or you can't and uh, a really bad black and gray is a really bad black and gray and and You know, anybody that looks at it would be like, oh, gosh, what do we do now? Um, So I'm really drawn to that for whatever reason. I just I love the way they look. Um, I mean, I like color and stuff, too. Uh, So as far as like a style, I would say I I border on enjoying realism, but not photorealism, more of a graphic oriented realism because I like lines and I like contrast. Um, so a little bit more punchy than just a straight photo realistic piece. If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of your fly fishing, uh, mentors, who are some of the folks that kind of helped you on your journey as an artist?
1: Oh boy. Um, so I guess in high school there was uh, there was one art teacher, uh, Miss Mogamer, Linda Mogmer. She had uh, in high school she she kind of took me in um, and really helped shape my art, I guess, helped make me take things a little bit more serious. As serious as you can do anything in high school, you know? And then when I had gotten to college, uh, Jim Stark, he was a professor, a sculpture professor at at Binghamton University. And uh, he was such a cool guy. I, I, I wish I had, I stayed in touch with him a few years after college. And then I'm terrible at keeping in touch with people when life gets in the way and you know how it goes but he uh he really influenced the way that I looked at things as an artist I I would say he um he had an interesting view on things he was this old hippie kind of dude that uh just had these really I don't know, I, I don't even know how to describe his views. They were just really interesting and laid back and uh, very non-judgmental. And, you know, I, I was, at the time, these these little sculptures that I was doing, one of my favorite sculptors uh, was um, Giacometti, his last name. Is, uh, very old sculptor he um did does these like stylistic sculptures that are very elongated the the human figures are very elongated and for whatever reason i i just i I responded to those and i was doing a lot of stuff that was influenced by that and it wasn't even on a a conscious level necessarily it was just something that was happening and a lot of professors you know when i was I, i had taken a lot of different art classes so there was a couple of professors that absolutely hated the direction that that was going. You know, they didn't understand it. They didn't understand why I was seeing things that way and, and did whatever they could to kind of get rid of that. Uh, Where, where Jim Stark totally embraced it and was like, Hey, I don't, I don't know why, you know, you're, you're going in that direction. I don't know what it is that you're responding to, but you are. So do it. Let's see where it goes. And everything was about, hey, follow, follow what comes instinctually and then see where it goes, see what happens, see if it develops, see if it develops into something else. And that's uh, uh, eventually what happened. You know, I had taken that and, uh, and because he let me run with it, I ended up going further and further and further and straight away from that into a new direction. But I wouldn't have gotten to that direction. I wouldn't have gotten to that point if I didn't have somebody that said, Hey, it's okay to go there now continue. And, and that's kind of what happened. So I would say he was, he was a big factor. And then after that, I mean, I didn't really, you know, the, the tattoo world, you know, I had, uh, I did an apprenticeship. I worked with a couple of different tattooers, uh, one of them's dead. Now, uh, the other two, I don't, I don't have any idea what happened. I, I don't care. They weren't good good humans so you know after that it's just a matter of who you uh who you look at and kind of uh get inspired by there's so much good art in the world that you know if 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 you ever talk to an artist and they they say they're not inspired by modern art and, and you know the things that are happening they're just not looking hard enough
0: yeah very very interesting and and when did you get interested in fly tying
1: so fly tying happened in 2009 uh, is when I tied my first fly and it was, it wasn't, um, it was purely utilitarian. I, I was going through, I was only fishing basically with one fly. Uh, I was using these crystal flash weighted like beadhead woolly buggers and I was tearing up the small one. And that was my, you know, that was my sole interest. I mean, it's still my, probably my all-time favorite fish to catch. But, uh, so I, I was going through so many of them and because I didn't have a fly shop or anything in the area, I learned how to make them. And that was the first fly that I ever tied. And, uh, that was kind of what got me into fly tying.
0: Very neat. What was your first vice?
1: Uh, first real vice was, uh, peak. Um, but the first vice that I ever had came out of a WAPC fly tying kit. That was the, gosh, I used that for probably the first six months, seven months, eight months, something like that of fly tying until I, I started figuring out that there's more than you know, crystal flash woolly boogers to tie.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and speaking of that, what drew you to tying with deer hair?
1: So I had gone into, um, again, I had gone into the LL Bean store and they had, uh, these pull out drawers, these huge bins in the middle of the, the fly fishing department that were just full of flies. And, uh, I had just, you know, accidentally opened one one day and there was, well, not accidentally, but I, I stumbled upon it, opened it up, and, and randomly, this drawer was full of these Dalberg divers. And I was like, what are these things? And uh bought one, paid an enormous amount of money for it, or at least it seemed like that at the time, and uh, didn't know what to do with it, but I just thought it was the coolest thing. And uh talked to a couple of people about it, and they said, yeah, you use it to catch largemouth and whatnot on, on the surface, I said, neat. So I went home, I fished with it. And, uh, I don't know, maybe a few fish later, it started falling apart on me. And I was like, what the heck? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, then I set out to learn how to make them
0: yeah very neat and so you start in like 09 and you get turned on to deer hair probably a little bit after that and you know three years later you know you're a professional tire you know what allowed you to become so proficient so quickly
1: my obsessive nature (laughs) (laughs) uh i think i mean all joking aside like when i do something it doesn't really matter what it is i i try to absolutely learn everything and anything that I possibly can about it. If I'm interested in it, it is, it is 100% what I focus all my attention to. So when I first started fly fishing, my very first year with a fly rod in my hand, I was on the water for 280 days. Oh wow. 280 days. And It didn't matter if it was raining, pouring. It didn't matter if it was the winter time. I didn't care. I went out and I fished at least a couple of hours every morning. And uh, it was the same thing when I started tying flies. Like I started with those crystal flash woolly burgers and literally like that's all I was tying for at least a few months. But now we're still in 2009 here. So by the end of 2009, I had become completely just overwhelmed with deer hair bugs. I, I was; These things are amazing. I love fishing with them. I love tying them. And uh, I was just, you know, starting to, the, the art side was starting to kick in and I was getting creative with them and having fun. And again, there was nobody to really teach me how to do any of it. So I had gone in and I had talked to my friend, Tom Brewster, and I said, hey, I want to tie these bass bugs. I want to tie these divers and stuff. And he was like, look, man, I don't know how to tie them, but I can tell you what materials you need. So that was the big step for me, because originally I, I, you know, I, I watched some video on YouTube or something and I was, you know, they were flaring this deer hair. But it didn't say, you know, it was belly hair or body hair or bucktail or whatever. So I had had these bucktails as part of that wopsy fly tying kit that I had. So I I'm trying to make these bass bugs out of this bucktail and it's just not working and not working and I was getting frustrated, couldn't figure it out. And then that's when Tom said, hey, you know, you really need you really need belly hair. And I said, oh, okay. So I bought all the colors that he had and uh, went home and put it on the hook and boom my hair flared i was like holy crap this is what i needed and then forget it once i saw that i had the correct material then you know the creative creative train just kind of took over and i was making all sorts of crazy stuff out of nowhere um and again it was That first one that I had bought fell apart on me. So I needed to figure out how do I tie these because they're time consuming. I mean, I don't care how many you tie. They're still time consuming. I tie thousands of them a year and they're still unbelievably time consuming. So I wanted them to last. So I figured out methods and and techniques, uh, you know, again, on my own, how to uh, make them durable. And it's just repetition, you know you uh getting good at something is is not about not about years or 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 time necessarily. I think that there's this big uh, misunderstanding of of the word experience because if you've got somebody that 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 says, "Hey, I learned this on you know Monday of two thousand. And I've been doing the same thing, and now it's 2020. Do you have 20 years' experience, or do you have a day of experience that you've done for 20 years? Because those are two very different things, right? Does that make sense?
0: No, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, you see the same thing where um, you know people are always amazed, like in the comp fishing world, about how these young anglers on the youth team. Can just mm-hmm. become fishing machines in such a short period of time, and they just have a very different curriculum for getting better, right? So, it's not about doing the same thing, it's about really kind of broadening and perfecting your skill set.
1: Well, it's about doing it a lot, and it's about doing it better every single time, and it's about saying to yourself, You can never stop learning or improving or getting better or learning a new technique or whatever. So having that kind of a mindset, every fly that I tie, I try to make better than the last one. I try to do, you know, maybe I can speed it up. Maybe I can tighten it up. Maybe I can, you know, get the hair to do something different or incorporate another material. I always try to improve upon the last fly, And I do it with everything that I do. You know, like maybe I had a successful tattoo today, but tomorrow if I have to do a tattoo that's similar, it needs to be better than it was yesterday. I always take the approach that you're only as good as your worst product. So I try to never have a bad product and then just keep improving from there. And I think that that makes for quicker experience. if if that makes sense or, or more experience if i i mean take take that first year on the water 280 days fishing how many people can say that they fish 280 days in 10 years fishing so who's got more experience that person that has that many days in a year or the person that's been doing it for 10 years three weekends a year you know what i mean
0: No, I 100% do. And I mean, it kind of comes down to like when you watch, um, you know, elite athletes practice and they practice in a very, very different way from kind of, you know, amateurs or kind of intermediate level athletes.
1: It's all about focus. Yeah. They have a goal in mind and to get to that goal, they have to do steps A, B, and C, and you can never skip A, B, and C. You have to do them every day. So when I started tying these bass bugs and, and all these other flies, I tied flies every day. I loved it. I mean, I, I, I woke up and I was like, got to tie a fly. Didn't matter what else was going on that day, had to tie a fly. And I did that every day and every day and every day. I mean, I get asked all the time, like, how do you get good at tying deer hair flies? No, it's simple. Learn the proper techniques with the proper tools, with the proper material, and then make 500 of them. You'll be good by the last one. And that's
0: it. Yeah, it's like, I guess, what is it, the Malcolm Gladwell book? It's about 10,000 hours to get good at anything. Sure. You know, I know, you know, being in upstate New York, you're a little bit isolated, and you're you're probably self-taught more than most anglers and tires. But, you know, who are some of the folks that have influenced you as a fly tire?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, there's so many. Uh you know, there's so many classic bass-oriented fly tires. And, and really, I am a warm-water fly tire. I mean, all the things that, you know, that I make, yeah, they can catch cold-water species and, and all these other fish as well. I mean, it's not as limited as we like to think it is. But, you know, I, I'm, I was very inspired by, by, like, Larry Dahlberg, by uh, Dave Whitlock. Uh, Skip use. There's all these like old school bass bug tires. Um, uh, 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 What's his name? Jeez, Uh, Chris Helm. Um, There's Jim Stewart. Jim was that his first name? Stewart something or last name was Stewart. Uh, There's so many. I, I I can't even. I can't even think of all the names. But a lot of the older. Original bass bug makers, uh, Messenger Joe Messenger. In fact, I'm I'm good friends with Joe Messenger's son, Joe Messenger. Also, um, we we chat all the time. He's he's a great great guy. Great fly tire. He has all his dad's patterns. I've got several of them actually. Um, a lot of those those original bass bug tires are, are the people that really have custom. Me. I mean, whether I met them in person or not, just the work that they did. You know, everything can be... There's very few things in the world that are original. So everything can be brought back to a base somewhere. And, you know, all the flies that I tie, they're modern versions of flies that have been being tied for a hundred years or more. I mean, bass bugs date back to the 1800s. So, you know, they're all kind of a building process. You start out with something basic, it moves on from there, on from there, on from there. It just kind of grows. And and people like to claim everything as their own. But really, I mean, you know, I've got some flies that are a little different than other flies. But when you break it all down, a deer hair bug is a deer hair bug. A popper is a popper. A popper can be brought back to Cap's bug. And, you know, we've changed it since then. But really, a deer hair popper is a deer hair popper at the end
0: of the day yeah got it and uh, you know i know you fished gear uh pretty extensively before you found the fly rod i guess a little bit over 10 years ago um yeah how does that uh gear experience kind of influence your tying
1: well i try to make a lot of flies that imitate what lures do um especially soft plastics there is no denying the effectiveness of a pro bass angler and a soft plastic bait. They will catch six-pound largemouth out of mud puddles with that stuff where there shouldn't be a fish. So to me, I, I always look at the tackle industry to see what's new, um, to see what techniques are out there, because really, whether it's a fly rod or a spin rod, bass fishing is bass fishing. All fishing is fishing. The only difference is delivery method, and and you know what we have to use to to catch those fish with. I mean, a fly is a lure. It's all kind of interwoven. I mean, we like to separate everything, but it's it's really not. I mean, a lure is an artificial artificially made thing that's used to fool a fish, and that's what a fly is. So, to me, if I can take a fly, and I can cast it with a fly rod and I can give that fly motion and action that are similar to something that has been truly tested and proven in the tackle world. And I can make it do the same thing. Then the only thing that's stopping me from catching a fish with it is my mindset. Right? So if you change your mindset and you say, Hey, it doesn't matter if this thing looks like a traditional fly or something a little bit different. And, and you can go out and you can give that fly that action. Then all of a sudden you are, you are now catching fish the same way that somebody with a spin rod can catch fish. So to me, it's all, it's all kind of interwoven and, and interlaced. There's really no hard lines between the two
0: you know so as we shift a little bit pat and kind of talk a little bit more about uh about tying stuff and particularly tying with deer hair um mm-hmm. you know um you know i kind of know this because i've tried it but i've also you know watched uh some of your stuff you know obviously and i'm sure the reason you stopped tying with that wopsy uh kit vice is because you couldn't get a hook to hold while you were spinning deer hair on it you know that it's critical right to be able to tie with deer hair to have a vice that can really clamp down on a hook and it was kind of interesting i was looking at your bloomberg article and video uh when i was doing research for the interview and your vice was really interesting because it looked like you actually had a special set of jaws that you actually get to thread the hook through so it's there's really absolutely no way it's going to come out
1: yeah yeah that's made by peak uh that's the the leader's head um that jaw system is if you're going to do big flies or, or any kind of deer hair fly, that ever you know, uh, where you're putting an enormous amount of pressure on the hook, that Lear's jaw is unreal. Um, when that first came out, I was at ICAST and uh, I actually put a one pound jig. It was an 18 knot hook uh, in that vise, And I picked that thing up and I swung the vise around by the hook. And that hook didn't budge out of that, out of that vice, out of that jaw system. And uh, they've got three, three different sizes. One of them is just enormous for, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know who would need that really, but the other, the smaller one is the one that I use. And it's interchangeable with the standard, with the standard jaw and the standard cam system. So you buy a regular rotary vice from peak, and then you get this, this Lear's jaw also. And, you know, you can, you can tie on any hook, uh, between the two draw systems it's it's awesome I, yeah i couldn't imagine doing deer hair work
0: without that thing now. yeah and so i guess you know the 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 interesting thing about that is for people that are you know uh let's just say deer hair curious right so they're kind of want to get into it and they don't have that system or they're trying to Wrap their head around when it's time to buy those jaws. What suggestion do you have for someone who um, isn't at the place to kind of super specialize their fly tying rig that way?
1: I mean, my uh, so I've tied on a peak, a regular rotary peak, since 2009. It was the first vice that I ever bought. And honestly, I've tied on a bunch of other vices, you know, from everything from, you know, super high end expensive vices all the way down to. Know whatever, Um, and I know people don't look at peak necessarily as a high end vice, but to me, it's that vice has for 10 years now 11 years. I'm on the original vice, it's $155, it's made in the USA, it's made right in Colorado, one piece at a time. You there is not a better vice for the money on the market, and I mean. I tie, for the last nine years, I have tied full-time commercially between 14 and 15, 16 hours a day on that vice. And never once have I said, man, I really need a different vice. So if, if you're ready to take the plunge into something, into a better vice, there's no reason to spend 500 bucks on one. You're not going to get anything different. I mean, it's, they're all made to do the same thing. They're all made to hold the hook. So the device that holds your hook and that peak does it.
0: Got it. And, and, you know, kind of a related point is, you know, at least I know for myself, when I buy natural materials, I always try to do it in person because I've gotten burned a couple of times. You know, what suggestions do you have for people uh, when they're ordering uh, natural materials like deer hair online or from a catalog to make sure they get what they really want?
1: So. All right. So I sell, I sell a lot of natural materials. I mean, I sell a, a, a lot of deer hair on that, let's say. So before I got into offering materials to people, I did a lot of that also. I did the same thing. I would go to the store. I would try to handpick everything that I wanted, but then you've got to go, you know, you've got to think, okay, you know, how far am I traveling? How far am I, here? whatever. And whenever possible, of course, you always want to support your local flash But if there's not a local flash app, my recommendation is to go to people that specialize in certain things. There are general online businesses that kind of sell a little bit of everything, and that's, that's perfectly fine, but there's not necessarily an area of specialty there where they're gonna go through and look at, at everything that they're selling you or whatever. So, like, when people buy deer hair for me, I actually sort all of that belly hair that comes in, I sort all of it out and I only ship out to my people, you know, the the best of what I can bring in. So when I buy materials from, from other retailers, I try to find people that have an area that they, you know, that, that they specialize in, or at least a level of customer care where I know they're not going to send me Whatever comes into them, they're gonna they're gonna kinda handpick that for me. If I tell them, hey, look, this is what I'm looking to make, can you grab me a bag or two of, you know, whatever that that looks a little bit nicer than maybe the average stuff that comes in? And that's how I go about it. Yeah, got it. It's
0: kind of funny because I always keep a list. And so when I go to fly fishing shows, I usually am uh, on a fly tying materials collection mission too. And also to your point, you know, building relationships with people like you so that, you know, I can call or email and say, Hey man, this is what I'm trying to do. And you kind of get that, you know, extra quarter turn of focus to kind of make sure you get what you need.
1: That's where I think small businesses win. You know, you can go to big box stores and you can go to you know, giant online conglomerates or whatever. But if you look to somebody that's, you know, I mean, I'm a one man show. So every single thing that leaves in a box from my office was put there by me. So I try to do business with companies that are very similar to that.
0: Yeah, got it. And, you know, Pat, in addition to having a good vice, um, you know, what other tools do you think are absolutely critical to being successful tying with deer hair?
1: So, you need a good vice, without a doubt. You also need some form of packing device. Um, I mean, of course, I, I developed the Fugly Packer. Um, there is no way to tie a deer hair fly tight without some form of packing tool you need to be able to pack thread and hair back on your hook shank um, you also need good thread the correct thread and that was something that i learned the very hard way um, i was trying to tie to your hair flies with uh, like flat wax nylon and basic basic tying threads and and it just led to an enormous amount of thread breaks and frustration so you really need GST. Uh, I tie a lot of bigger bugs, so I use 200 denier GSP. Um, you need belly hair. Belly hair is essential to the making of bass bugs, and there is a difference between belly hair and body hair. Uh, belly hair tends to be a lot more coarse, and it has a lot less underfur than the body hair. Body hair is great for things <laughs> like gallop-style streamers and muddler heads and things that you want to be a little bit softer and absorb a lot of water. Uh, The whole idea behind a bass bug is to keep them kind of floating and and you want that that coarseness and and a little bit of rigidity in the hair to hold its shape. Although I use belly hair for muddlers and stuff like that as well. I just pack it a little bit less tight. That way it will absorb water. Uh, So belly hair... GSP thread, a packing tool, a good vise, and you really want good strong hooks. Uh, There is nothing worse than getting halfway through a bass bug, going to pack the hair back, and having your hook bend in half on you. So I use, at my personal preference, I I like the A-Rex hooks. I tie a lot on the the TP-610s. Uh, but there's a lot of great hooks out there that that you can certainly that you can certainly use. But I go for a heavier wire hook whenever I'm tying any kind of uh, any kind of deer hair fly. And then uh, the basic stuff, you know, um, I, I use uh, thread cement, you know, head cement. Um, I use that in between my stacks of hair just as a little bit more durability. Now, bad tying technique. Glue will not make up for bad tying technique, but it will certainly aid if you have good techniques. A little bit of glue mixed in will just add durability of your bug. And uh, razor blades. You need razor blades to trim that hair. If you want that nice, smooth, finished look of, uh, of a you popper, know, a diver, pop a, dive a slider, any of those types of then you need to learn how to trim with a razor blade. Um, and then the other thing that I really like, I, I developed some scissors that uh, both blades are serrated. Uh, I find that cutting hair off the hide with, with blades that are not serrated, the hair tends to slide down the, the scissor blade as opposed to catching and cutting. So I've got these, uh, I've got these scissors that I have made that, that both blades are serrated. It makes a world of difference in cutting the hair.
0: Yeah, and speaking of those, I think you've got a special on them right now, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah, actually I do. I <laughs> just got a bunch of them in. It took a long time to, to get them. This COVID is making, making havoc with uh, manufacturing and shipping.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just wanted to touch on kind of two things from that list. And that was super generous of you to kind of share all that because there's a ton of information in there. You know, it's interesting because I I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, I just bought your your junior packer. And I mean, it's a a weapon, right? And so, I mean, you know, compared to those, you know, look like they're kind of cut out of sheet metal and folded packers. I think, you know, you buy one and um, you're probably good for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, it's a one-time, it's a one-time tool purchase for sure. I mean, my when I, I I made them, I started playing around with the idea of a more, you know, a more rugged uh, packer in 2010 and then 2011. I actually had a finished prototype that I was like, yeah, this is this is the thing we need. Um, and I still to this day am using my original finished prototype. It's the first packer that ever you know that ever came out to look like this now there's been some changes since then as far as you know they're made i mean they're made in the u.s too actually they're made right in colorado um but uh they're powder coated now and then the spring steel changed a little bit and you know things like that little minor things that just make manufacturing better and cleaner uh, originally like <laughs> what a story on those backers though i mean we can get into that another day but Basically when when they first started they were being made by a buddy of mine in his garage at night like 25 of them a week with a a hand press hydraulic uh, you know a, a hydraulic press that was hand pumped and uh, to bend all the metal and then they were coated with uh, with an automotive enamel, clear coated and there was a million steps. Now they're made by a big machine shop and they're powder coated but it took a very long time and a lot of groundwork at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 Very neat. And, you know, I also wanted to ask you too, cause you were talking about, you prefer GSP and, you know, I know some people, um, you know, there's that Kevlar versus GSP kind of question. And yeah. what, what made you go in the GSP direction as opposed to using Kevlar thread?
1: So what I like about GSP is it's very thin for its, for its strength. Um, so it's, you can work it, easily through the hair it's it's also very slick which makes uh makes working with the hair really really kind of nice i mean there's there's things like like with any material there's there's things that you need to be aware of like gsp is actually made of individual strands so when you hear 200 denier gsp that's actually 200 little strands of fiber that are woven together to make one piece of bread So if you don't have constant tension on your thread, you end up with little thread fibers all over the place that will catch your hair and fold your hair and make a mess. But if you keep tension on that and you work it kind of like you would work uh (sighs) almost like dental floss through your teeth. You know, you can't just grab a piece of dental floss and jam it straight down between your gums without, you know, bleeding and making a mess. So you kind of wiggle it back and forth a little bit. You do the same thing with GSP. If you keep the tension on that thread and you move it back and forth sideways just a little bit, you slide right between all those hairs and you don't catch any of them. If you have no tension on that thread and you let it kind of come apart, you end up with a mess. What I found with Kevlar... Is Kevlar is a little bit thicker, and it has a tendency to cut through the thread, or through the hair, a little bit more easily than GSP does. Um, you're putting an enormous amount of pressure on hair. So the whole idea when you when you compress the deer hair is that you want that thread to get down to the hook as close as possible. Um, the more tension on the thread. The uh, number one, the tighter your bass bug is going to be in the end, but the more durable that bug is going to be because you've got an enormous amount of pressure on that hair so that there's no way that hair can actually pull out. But it also, the tighter you pull, the more that hair will stand up at a 90-degree angle to the hook shank. So you need thread that you can really put tension on and not cut through all that hair. And I'm not saying that you're not going to cut I mean, you will eventually cut through some deer hair with GSP. It's it's bound to happen. I mean, not all hair is the same, and and you know it goes through a process where it's bleached and dyed, and and if it's over bleached, the hair will dry out and become a little bit more brittle. And you'll find out real quick how much tension you can put because you'll be in the middle of a bug go to pull down and you cut through your hair and you end up with this poof of you know, <laughs> hair all over the place and in your lap. And, and it's going to happen. I mean, I, I do it all the time. So. Yeah. But GST is really easy to work with, um, over, over Kevlar. And what's nice about it is it's flat. So when you're building a thread base, you can build a flat thread base. And then if you want to build a head, like a thread head, with GSP, you can actually spin the thread. And now, now you've got a round thread. And then you can build up a, thread ba- uh, a head that way also. So it gives you some options.
0: Yeah, very neat. And I, know, and I know, too, that you prefer to stack hair as opposed to spinning it. And I was just kind of curious kind of how you came to that way of doing things.
1: Stacking hair gives you 100% control over every single piece of hair that is in your bug. Spinning... Uh, spinning is a little bit, um, a little bit by chance. You're taking one giant clump of, of hair and you're making three or four wraps of thread around that and you're pulling down and you are winding your thread around that hook. And the theory is that when you spin a clump of hair, that hair will evenly disperse all the way around 360 degrees, all the way around your hook shape. Now, very, 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 very seldom do you get an even spreading of hair by doing that. And the other thing is you only get, you've got the same color of hair all the way through the bug that way. So it's, you're working in the round all the time. Now, stacking hair, you're working, well, you can work many different ways actually stacking hair, but let's, let's, the most basic and it's, and it's, most raw form, you're working from the bottom of the hook shank to the top of the hook shank, and the theory is if you use, let's say, three pencil thicknesses, you're always going to hear about deer hair tires. They're all they're all going to talk about pencil thicknesses of hair. Very rarely, for the record, is is it ever a pencil thickness? It so just that's what we use, like you know, to talk about it. But it's, if you really look at the clumps of hair we're using. It's most of the time, it's much bigger than that. But anyway, so three pencil thicknesses on the bottom. You're going to want the same amount or a little bit more on top. But if you spin that, you've got that three pencil thicknesses, in theory, spread all the way out. But then when you pack that back, you're going to see there's more density on one side. Maybe there's a clump over here, a clump over there. When you're stacking that, literally, that three pencil thicknesses, that first clump, all of that will be on the bottom of the shank. And then from there, you build up your color patterns, your bars, your spots, your dots, whatever it is that you want the top of that that bug to look like. And now you've got symmetrical hair, top and bottom, because you've controlled every bit of hair that goes on that hook shank. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um and uh, I guess you could, in theory, stack only if you want to kind of monochrome and you wanted to kind of roll the dice on like a muddler head or something like that, right?
1: Even muddler heads. I, I stack muddler heads, too. If I want one color muddler head, that's fine. But I'll still stack it because then I know exactly how much hair is on the, the bottom and the top. Got it. It's all about controlling your materials. Any, any fly you tie is all about having control of the material that you're choosing to use at the time. And stacking for me, in, in my opinion, and I mean, you talk to other fly tires, they may tell you something different and that's okay. But in my opinion, it's the easiest way to control your hair is stacking.
0: Yeah, it got it, and it's it's interesting. You know, you, we touched briefly on kind of the COVID supply chain problems you were having um, with getting your scissors, and I suspect that your book release that came out in May was probably uh, delayed a little bit by COVID as well. And you know, for folks that, oh, don't, yeah, yeah, I mean, and and so you know, for folks that don't know, and I, you know, we talked about this a little bit when we were together in Edison uh, earlier in the year before everything kind of fell apart. You know, and around, I guess, Memorial Day, you released uh, your first book, Super Bass Flies, How to Tie and Fish the Most Effective Imitations. And I was just kind of curious, what made you want to write a book?
1: <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I had had the idea uh, a while ago about just kind of sharing my experience and, and, you know, experiences of other bass anglers in, in one collective, um, going from top of the water to the bottom of the water and just saying, hey, look, this is all the stuff that we use. This is what we're imitating and this is why we're imitating. This is how we're imitating. It. And these are the things that you may run into when you're on the water as far as food sources when I was looking around at other fly time books, um, there, 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 was nothing that I found in the bass world that was really, um, completely comprehensive as far as covering all the general foods that, you know, bass pretty much across the country in one form or the other. will will see, um, whether it be, you know, adult dragonflies or, or hex nymphs or, or whatever. I mean, these are all things that I would say the general bass fly angler may overlook. And they're things to me that were, that were very important. And, uh, you know, being in the warm water world, I, I've got a lot of fly tying and fly fishing friends that are also, you know, of the same mindset and they all, chase the same fish and tie flies for the same thing so I got chatting with a bunch of a bunch of different fly tires and I said hey what do you what do you think about this and uh, you know everybody was pretty stoked on it and and you know they they all kind of agreed that there wasn't a lot out there as far as one comprehensive resource for a fly angler that was looking to expand their knowledge or or whatever. Again, it, 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 you know, it it goes back to that kind of obsessive nature that I had. When I, when I first developed my love of chasing smallmouth with a fly rod, I, I became completely obsessed with that fish. And I learned, I read everything that I could get my hands on as far as biology and you know i wanted to know everything about their behavior i wanted to understand them i wanted to think like them i wanted to know hey i can go to any stream anywhere and i can find a bass and that's kind of what i focused in on and and when i decided to to try to write a book about that uh i wanted to include all these other phenomenal anglers and tires that I've met along the way. And I mean, of course I can't, you know, you can't include everybody in one book, but there's a lot of fly tires in my book. There's, you know, a hundred and something patterns in there from tires all over the world. I mean, bass are, bass are not only in the United States, bass are worldwide. So there's all these tires from everywhere that kind of contributed and it was just an, it was an awesome experience really. I mean, it was a lot of work, but it was, uh, it was pretty cool to do.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't
1: do another one.
0: Yeah. (laughs) No, I I could tell literally when you reacted to my question that you weren't going to write another book.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was, it took me two years, uh, to put it all together. And, uh, I mean, I'm I'm so happy that I saw it through, and believe me, there were many mornings when I was sitting there ready to write that I was like, why am I doing this again? Yeah. But I really think that it was, uh, I don't know that it was something that necessarily needed to happen or anything like that, but it was just, uh, I don't know, I guess it was just something I felt that I could maybe contribute positively to uh, the bass fishing world, and uh, so I did it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's a two-year journey. You know, what's the, I guess, what's the greatest thing you kind of learned about yourself in that two years writing the book?
1: Um, boy, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess, uh, you know, it, it's like anything, when you put your mind to, to finishing something, you've got to, it's easy to be self-defeating, right? Easy to, to sit there and be like, well, I don't want to do this. This is just stupid or whatever, or this is too much work. Or, or But I guess, you know, really you, you, you set a goal, you make a commitment and you follow it through. And that just kind of goes through my entire life. I, I set a goal, make the commitment and I, I watch it happen or I make it happen. I don't watch anything happen. Nothing just happens. You go off and do it. Um, and this was just one more thing like that. You know, it's a, it's a notch in your belt. It's an accomplishment of a lifetime. I never in my life thought I would write a book. It was never something that was on my radar in any way, shape or form. It, uh, it was actually, I, I was long story short, like I said, I had, I had thought about it and, uh, and then didn't really do much with the idea. And somebody that I had written, I wrote an article. I've, I've written a few articles. One of the publishers actually had reached out to me and said, hey, what do you think about doing a book? And then that got the gears really turning even more. You know, that's how I ended up. You know, a couple weeks later, they sent me a contract. And I was like, oh, if this is real now, huh?
0: Yeah, there you go. Um,
1: <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know that I learned necessarily anything Typically about myself, but I mean, if you, you know, if you see something through and, you know, that's, uh, that's huge. And and if I can do it, anybody can do it, you know, just set that goal and get out.
0: Yeah. Find a way or make a way is what I always tell my boys.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You just got to stick to it.
0: You know, and, you know, our paths have crossed many times over the years at fly fishing shows. And I know from talking to you that you really kind of like to get out in the field and teach people um, everything that you've learned. And I was just kind of curious kind of what your plans are for the upcoming show and teaching season. So maybe people can uh, can meet you in person, get a book autographed and kind of uh, learn in person from the master.
1: You know, I got to be honest, this coming season, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, normally year to year, I've got a very set plan. I've got events. I've got classes that I teach. I've got shows that I attend. Uh, but our world is kind of in turmoil at the moment. And, uh, I am in close quarters with people one-on-one on a regular basis. And, uh, I've got people around me that are Susceptible to illnesses that I don't know that I want to be around large groups of people this year to take any chances with the uh, the COVID situation. Honestly, I mean, I don't. So I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing this year. If if things clear up, I would love to get back to doing shows this year. If things don't clear up, this may be the year that I sit out show season.
0: Yeah, you could write another book.
1: i could but i won't (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean you never know i I may one day i don't know i have a love for pike too and carp and stuff like that but i don't know that i i don't know that i'm passionate enough about them to sit down and make that kind of a commitment like i am truly passionate about bass i love bass fishing yeah passionate enough to the point that you know when i was writing it i sat down and i made my outline and the the hardest thing about writing a book and and i'll I'll, I'll tell you it's 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 going back through your memories and and thinking about when you get to the water and all the things that you do on the water that you just go and do naturally so whether it's observing what's going on around you, whether it's systematically approaching the water, systematically approaching a piece of structure, uh, checking the barometric pressure, checking, you know, flows, there's there's all these things that they almost become ritual. You don't think about them. You just do them and you go on about your day and then you go fish and catch fish or you don't because sometimes they win and that's okay too. But You know, when, when I sat down to do this, I had to actually break all those moments down into something that I could talk about and write about and explain to other people. Like this is my process. So I've got a very specific process when I go bass fish, when I go chase these other species. And I, I mean, I chase all sorts of fish all over the place. Uh, but, I don't know that I have enough to say about that stuff to write. you know I mean that fast book is four hundred pages, you know I mean I think there's an enormous amount of information in there that I didn't even know that I knew, <laughs> yeah
0: well ma- uh, ma- so I don't know, yeah, maybe you just need to fish more um. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it feels like it lately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you may not be out for completely understandable reasons. People may not be able to see you kind of uh this winter, yeah. early spring, but I know you have a YouTube channel, which I'll drop a link to in the show notes. But you also have some instructional DVDs that you sell on your website, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've got uh the Stacked Deer Hair Divers on there that teaches uh, how to make. You know, my, my kind of style of uh, Dahlberg Diver, um, how to stack. It teaches you all the techniques of how to work with the hair. And then, of course, the the book is, is available on my website. That goes into tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff. Yeah. Um, but the two of them in conjunction, you could basically make any bass fly that you want to make.
0: Yeah, plus you can also, I remember checking your site, you can get them bundled with packers and all kinds of good stuff too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I try to discount things where I can and and help people out i mean you know it's uh fly fishing is expensive so fly tying is expensive so i try to make things reasonable for folks you know and still make a couple of pennies to pay my rent with or well my mortgage or whatever with you know Yeah.
0: <laughs> there you go well listen is there anything else on the horizon for superfly that you want to share with our listeners
1: you know i um so I right now I'm actually uh, I'm, I'm taking a little break from the the production side of tying. I, I tied full time commercially for for nine years and change now. So I'm going to be doing uh, some small runs of some pretty customized flies, some some you know, really more elaborate, more detail oriented stuff. and uh, I'm hoping down the road in the near future i get some more graphic oriented things together some images some maybe some shirts that kind of thing or, or some stickers that you can actually put on you know put on fly boxes and i'm going to be doing a lot more of the fly box art and that kind of thing so more more in that direction in, in the future more more of the art creative side of things the uh, i'm not made to sit advice all day long and grind out the same things over and over and over again. I've done it. It was great. I enjoyed it, but now it's back to the roots of creativity and art.
0: Yeah, very cool. And so why don't you let folks know the best place to buy your book, your DVDs, and all of your other stuff, and you know how to generally follow the adventures of Pat Cohen?
1: Uh, you can go right on my website, which is the letters are superfly.com I'm also on Instagram and I am on Facebook I've got a personal page on Facebook I also have a Pet Cohen business page uh, that you can check out and uh, I've got that YouTube channel I'm unfortunately I'm terrible at video uh, at making videos so I have not updated any new videos in quite some time but I'm hoping that at some point I will have some time and, uh, maybe somebody can teach me to edit a little bit better and I can get some new stuff up on that, but don't hold me to the YouTube, but definitely the other stuff you can, you can check out. And and that's where I'll post, you know, when I've got new flies and that kind of thing up for sale. Yeah, that's about it.
0: Yeah. I'll drop all those in the show notes and Pat, I appreciate you carving a little bit of time out today to chat with me.
1: Yeah, Marvin, thanks for having me, man. This was awesome.
0: Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Take care now, guys. Thank you.
0: Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend, and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And again, a shout-out to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Please visit btt.org today and learn more about their upcoming virtual auction and award ceremony and other ways you can support this great organization. Tight lines, everybody.